Charles Louis Mortgage Advisors, 0161-959-0166. Hello and welcome to the latest Forever Blue podcast. Uh, I'm Ian Cheeseman and I really appreciate your company. Uh, obviously, if you want to subscribe to the podcast, dead easy to do. And it basically means that every time we do a new podcast, which during the football season is once a week, you'll get notified and uh, you'll get it downloaded into your inbox. I don't know if you listen on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, which is the original hosting platform, or wherever you, you listen, but you're very welcome. And of course, share the word as well. And a big shout out to charleslouis.co.uk, Chartered Mortgage Advisors, who advise both on buying and selling houses, getting mortgages at this difficult time, challenging time that we're all facing in life at the moment. They're very good, give you a bit of a personal insight into what they do and try to tailor their help for you in terms of what you need. So big shout out to them. Thanks very much to charleslouis.co.uk. And as you probably heard there at the beginning, they have a phone number. You can always rewind the podcast if you want to jot down that telephone number and give them a call. Uh, now, I have three guests with me tonight. We have the uh, amazing Captain Fantastic, uh, Andy Morrison, one of the great legends of the Manchester City Football Club. Uh, 23, as we're recording this on the Monday after Newcastle, the victory at Newcastle, it, it was, believe it or not, 23 years ago yesterday since City lost 2-1 at York um, and uh, then the new history of City sort of started from that, uh, led by Andy Morrison, a lot of it, and without his determination, bravery and leadership, perhaps we wouldn't be where we are today. So, uh, Andy, you will always be a legend in my eyes. Thanks very much for joining us. Um, also got Adam, uh, Adam Waring, who's one of our regular contributors, who's, uh, who's been doing the podcast with me now for a long time. Always a welcome guest. Always great, great um, questions and answers and opinions and a budding journalist as well. So uh, uh, good luck to you, Adam, in the future. And I'll be no doubt appearing on your podcast, but thanks very much for, for joining us. And we have Harlan, who uh, popped up on the, the vlog when the vlog started four and a half years ago, whenever it was, and I haven't been able to get rid of him since. Uh, always has an opinion on everything. So let's start with you, Andy. Uh, City's victories this week have been a 7-0 thrashing of Leeds, followed by a 4-0 win up at Newcastle. Uh, almost faultless, I would suggest, uh, in spite of the fact that the personnel slightly changed. I don't know how you sum this up because when something is so perfect, I know Pep was a little bit critical of the performance at Newcastle, which frankly I'm a bit astounded by, but I guess that's what makes him what he is. You know, he's striving for, for perfection. Well, that was as near perfection as I can imagine it. You know, you're a manager, Andy. I mean, how, how do you sum up the last two performances? I think the Leeds was exceptional. I thought, um, you know, they caught us on a very good night and I thought they were poor. Um, and I think I think the the injuries they have, I think people just look over it. You know, they obviously lost against Arsenal, and I've had to listen to a lot of comments from people this week talking about them. But you got six or seven key players missing. Any squad, especially when your quality is not the depth of the top sort of six clubs that they have, you're always going to struggle. So I thought they were a bit harsh some of the comments about. Uh, the Leeds performance, but you know, we were very, very good on the day and you know, Bielsa got it wrong, got it completely wrong against us. I thought there's no way they're going to go toe-to-toe against Man City and come to the Etihad and think that they're going to be able to play the way they play. I expected a deep block and them trying to play from there, but 
they were really, really poor. And I think uh, anyone who actually called the manager out after the game were right to do that after the, the, the City game because the players are all right there. You know, you're giving players information on what you want to do and how you want to be perceived as a manager. And this is my philosophy. But you've still got to look after your players. And, and they were lucky they weren't on the end of a 10, 11, 12, which would, you know, a, a record in the Premier League. And that's down to the manager and the way he set them up. And he got it horribly wrong. Newcastle, I can understand um, because we've been so good now for the best part. You know, you take the Leipzig game out away. We've been so good for a, a period of time now that the standards are so high that in the first half, we were sloppy. I didn't move the ball quick enough. Uh, weren't really in tune with the game. It broke down on too many occasions. Um, but, you know, we're our finishing at the minute has been the difference. And I think the Wolves game, we had 24 chances and scored one. Um, and then against Leeds, I think it was 27, 28 maybe, and we scored seven. So it's always about our finishing. And in relation to the opportunities we create, when we're really, really sharp and ruthless, we get the five, six, sevens, which we've seen now over the years. But just for the last, you know, we've been winning games of football, but been nowhere near as ruthless as we were in the David Silva, Guerrero period of, of the club. I thought we were so clinical in them games and the finishing was at a different level. But, you know, the signs are good now, you know, because we, we started finding the back of the net. Whilst I respect the statistics that you just quoted, and particularly from a man like you who's been a manager and I've never done that job, the one thing I observe is that um, City played against the lead side who... We're all screaming as supporters that we want teams to come to the Etihad or play against City and not try to cheat, not trying to time waste, not try to put 11 men behind the ball. Leeds didn't do that. They tried to play football. Uh, they might have played it naively, some people would say, and you can correct me or correct the, the people who've said that if you want, but that's how they've described Leeds' performance. And you could argue to a point that Newcastle played a little bit like that. So against Wolves, against Southampton, um, you know, against Crystal Palace, teams who were eking out every goal kick, uh, kicking everybody that moved, it sort of worked for them, um, not always in terms of, of a win, you know, like obviously Southampton got a draw, but at the very least they did was not get battered like City did against Leeds. Is it as simple as that? If, if you were the manager of the opposition, would you think to yourself, well, look, we're going to lose today, so let's at least damage limitate, and if we can nick something great and steal a victory, or do you come there and try and play football but risk getting a heavy beating? Which way do you approach it? You, you certainly don't. You never come in thinking we're going to get beat today. You know, whether you're Burnley, whether you're West Ham, United, whoever it is, the manager, you have a game plan in place, um, and that based normally around trying to suffocate City and stop them creating opportunities to score. Um, if that plan goes wrong early on and you lose one and you're one nil down, then you try and stay against City to 70, 75 minutes at one nil. And then you, you, you have a goal because with City, once they get that second goal, if they've got that second goal on 22, 23 minutes, you're in all sorts of trouble. If they get that second goal on 81, 82 then it's not so bad. You know, you can see the game through and not really affect confidence and, and not give your players a run around. Um, and Bielsa, Bielsa got it wrong. Um, you've got to give your players something to hold on to. But when you're 4-0 down, 5-0 down, and then they attack 
down the right-hand side. And, and I was co-commenting on the game. And, you know, they ended up with six in the box when the ball went into Edison's hands. There's no logic to that. The, the front man, James, um, was playing as a one, but he was chasing the centre-halves down. So you know how good City rotate the ball between the centre-halves and Rodri, and then they come out there. That's always their pattern, start from them three, and then they build from there. James is chasing them. And I'm thinking, why? Why would you not drop back in, go side of Rodri, and let the centre-half step in and give them a place to where we're going to allow them to come to, then we're going to press in tighter areas. And, you you know, it's much more hard. It's more difficult to play. But City were playing two passes from the back and taking four Leeds players out of the game. And there's no logic to that. And I, and I don't care what how Bielsa's thought about in the game um, and, you know, as such a, a reputation. He got it horribly wrong on the night and he left his players exposed to be embarrassed. Um, and I think he had to be accountable for that. I get the the injuries. I understand that, but he still had to. He still had to. Uh, that, that's the neighbours coming round. Just let me sort that out. While while Andy's sorting the dog out, let me let me throw over then to Adam and let's get your verdicts on on what's going on at the moment. I, I'm writing a newspaper column this more this morning, Adam, which you can obviously relate to in the sense that you're a journalist. And I, I'm trying to think of different ways I can write about the way City play. Now you won't remember, certainly not having seen him anyway, even if you know the name, you won't remember a player called Kazu Dana, who City signed a Polish player uh, in the 70s. Uh, he didn't play that many games, actually he played less than 50 games for, for City. But And you might argue that the reason he was signed was because the Peter Swales, who was the chairman at the time, was trying to follow the trend of foreign players. It was at the time when Ozzy Ardiles was coming in and Ricky Villa. And, but the, the observation that I made when I was watching that game at Newcastle was that Dana, when he came into English football at that particular time, was a player who didn't waste the ball, didn't shoot if there wasn't a clear line at goal, didn't make a pass unless the player was in a good position or if there was any risk that the pass that the person who received the pass would lose the ball. And now we seem to have 11 players like that. Um, he was ahead of his time back in the 70s. But now we have a... And I'll ask Andy about this in a minute, you know, about how you coach that. But that seems to be what's making City special at the moment. Is that, is that something you've noticed? Yeah, it seems to be a zero-risk strategy. I, I see that we just didn't do it very well in the first half against Newcastle because we were giving the ball away. Even the short passes were poor. But in general, when we're on top of our game, it is zero risk. And, and that's why some people can call us boring sometimes because it is about the short passes and only taking the chance when it's really on. You know, not trying to do anything crazy, um, only taking the shot when you definitely know that it's on and you're going to be able to get a shot on target and make something out of it. So I think that is it. It's, it's risk-free football at the minute. And because Rodri's playing so well, even when they do sort of get out, we can we can always manage to recover it. So but that's that's how I describe it. It's, it's risk-free football and it's, well, it's working really well at the moment. Um, and it's allowing us to create the chances that we need to because if you... If you're if you're on if you're playing end to end just like we were in the first half against Newcastle, it's more difficult. Obviously, you can't control the game, so we want to be able to control it and create those chances um, because we've not got a striker to sort of um, hit five in if we're going to concede four of them. Whereas in the the seventeen eighteen season, you know you can win seven two, you can win you can win like that because you've got Aguero up top. But now we just 
it might be the difference, you know, one or two goals is the difference in, in winning the decent game against a decent team. So we need to make sure we're having the clean sheets and risk-free strategy sort of helps that, doesn't it? One of the fans on my vlog after the game, I don't know if you got to see it, and obviously listening, if you've not watched it, have a look at it. But one of the fans said, this is the best football that the Premier League has ever seen. How do you feel about that, Adam? I, I personally, I don't think it's the most exciting. It's probably the most perfect in terms of what the manager wants us to do and his own philosophy. It probably is the most Guardiola team we've seen since he's come to City. But for me, the, uh, an exciting team, maybe even does concede a few chances, you know, but then goes up the other end and, and puts in three or four, maybe concedes two. The most exciting team in the Premier League for me was that 17-18. But again, I'm only 23 years old, so I don't remember the older ones. But um, certainly in my time, that's the most exciting I can remember because that was quick on the counter-attack. You know, we were... We, we could turn the ball over and, and, and run quickly at the goal and, and create amazing goals with Sane and Sterling and the pace up front. Whereas now we're a lot more controlled and it's, not, it's a lot more thought about, whereas for me, I prefer that sort of fast, fast quick football. Sort of like Liverpool, effectively, really. the way They're, they're, they're more exciting, I think, than us, but I just think we're, we're better than them as a, as a team. Well, perhaps come back to that subject. It's a very interesting subject in a minute or two. But let me go back to Andy and, and just ask you about how you coach, which is a question I said I was going to ask you. How do you coach players to always make the right decision? Because is that something that has to be ingrained in the player? Because Pep's getting all the credit. It feels to me like he deserves all the credit. But how has he managed to get sort of 22 players who always seem to make the right decision in every situation? I think there's a process. I think the way that um, they train, you know, it, it, it's repetitive. You know, you've seen Cancelo and Torres, you know, over the years. We've seen players that have taken a year, you know, may, may, maybe eight to eight to 12 months. And then the following season, they're, they're better and they keep improving. And it's just understanding the, the rotations, the movements and how you want to do things. And the patterns are very much the same when you watch it from, you know, over the years and, you know, the conundrum is for the opposition manager to try and find a way to suffocate that. And the managers do. Uh, there's spaces where City used to, re with Silver, really hurt the opposition in little pockets outside the box to the right and left. And the clubs, football clubs, they're, they're blocking them off now, managers, you know, and he has to find another way of going around that, finding a different way of doing it. And, uh, and it's an ongoing thing because as soon as you get a, something going like we're doing at the minute, such as the um, such as the quality of the analysis and you know the detail that I'll be going into. Every club that are coming will have an idea of how to stop that, and then you know you you'll you'll try and find another way to do it. I always think we struggle against a back five when the 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 wing backs go man for man with our wide men when we play a four three three and stick with them. I always think that stifles us. West Ham, uh, sorry, Wolves did it really well. And they've done it now over the seasons. They've found a way that you know of suffocating the game against us. But the for, for for City, it's just repetitive. It's you know doing them continually in games and tightening everything up and giving the players incredible belief, um, and also demanding. The work rate is phenomenal, you know, and that has to come from the manager. You know, the if you lose once a play breaks down, you see the reaction, and it's not a recovery run. It's a recovery sprint you have to sprint. And if you're not sprinting, you won't play. 
And that's something that I really admire about the manager. You know, yes, we know the patterns. Yes, we know the play, the percentages. Uh, possession is incredible in relation to everyone we play. But on the flip side of it, when we lose play, lose the ball, sorry, if you're not sprinting and you're just making recovery run, uh, recovery runs into certain areas, I've seen, I've seen the manager leave players out. And it's been down for that for me, the fact they're not working hard enough. And it is, it is relentless. And of course, you know, I think the manager has to take great credit for that because the consistently to do it game after game after game after game, like City are doing it, that can only come from the manager. You've got good staff around you, but the players see his eyes, they see his body language, they see his intensity, and they react to that. If he drops off, players will drop off. If he's a smile on his face and there's a, a bit of joviality and the, the player sense it straight away and then they drop their standards. So, you know, again, I, I, like I say, I, I manage myself and I understand how difficult it is every single training session, every game to keep them standards so high. But Pep seems to somehow be able to do it. Harlan, we haven't heard from you yet. So you've heard a lot of what we've had to say. What, what do you want to add to the debate? Well, just to just to pick up on something um, that, that Andy said, then Ian, I think I think one thing that Pep has always been good at, in my opinion, from the teams I've watched him manage, Barca, Barca B, Bayern Munich, us, uh, regardless of what some of his ex-players say, which obviously know more about the inner workings of Pep's management style than me, but from just looking from the outside, it seems to be that, that, that there's something there's something really good about his his man management skills that obviously we've never evidently seen, you know, in action. But every time he seems to remove a player from an equation, like Andy was touching on then, when a player's on a, you know, a poor run of form or, or they're not really doing the work that he's expecting them to do or he's sending them out to do a job that they're clearly not capable of doing in, in that phase of the season or whatever, I feel that when he takes a player out, yes, it's a punishment because of your, you know, lack of performance and, and everything else, but he must be doing work with them players behind the scenes then at the CFA, you know, psychological stuff with the psychologist at the club, um, physical stuff to get them up to scratch. So that then when they go out to perform again, I, I can't remember a player that's come back from a poor run of form that's been taken out of the equation that's come back in and that Pep will have just thrown back in to fill a gap. He's thrown them back in because he believes that they're, from what they've shown in training, have learned from their mistakes in previous games during the season. And you see evidence of that player clearly improving on what they were showing pre-removal from the pitch. So I think he's clearly got a real team behind the scenes and obviously in his backroom staff that are capable of so much regarding helping players not be punished for what they're doing wrong, but almost rewarded by giving them a second chance but giving them all the ingredients they need to go out and succeed. On that basis, I suppose Kyle Walker, who seems to be being, I mean, I'm just reading into this, that he's being punished for that sending off uh, that he had in Leipzig, you know, that Pep was really upset about that and he's, he's kept him out of the squad now for a couple of games. You, on that basis, you'd expect Kyle Walker, however Pep is handling him, whatever he's saying to him behind the scenes, however he's managing him, man-managing him, to come back firing on all cylinders again, just as I would suggest that Zinchenko has come back after a long period of play. Now, John Stones has come back in to play after a long period's not in the game. Um, you know, that, that 
you ex and, and possibly that's what's happened with Grealish now in the last game. You know that he didn't start at Newcastle because he's not quite got that running power, that sprinting that Andy's talking about. And so you'd expect all of them to come back in with no reaction. Well, a reaction, but a very positive reaction rather than any negative. Is that is that what you're you're saying? Yeah, that's definitely what I'm alluding to. And I think when you look at the way we set up in games, and he was right, Adam touched on it, I think, as well early on, that you, we have a squad of players now that that have got different ingredients. So you're playing against a certain side, like Andy said, against the Wolves, playing a back five. Pep will pick his team based on the opponent he's playing against, based on specific players they've got to try and combat what they're going to throw at us or what they're going to try and stop us from doing. And granted, you know, he, he picks his team and... You know, when Esperito Santo was there, he'd pick his team and then you'd you'd make adaptations throughout the game. But we've got so many different ingredients. So if there's a Grealish on the bench, you know, that when we need to control possession or we need to maybe slow things down to wait for the opportunity that Adam was touching on before to present itself or that you've got to earn the right to create a chance, Grealish is a perfect player for that. But yet on the counter-attack, maybe he slows things down. So you wouldn't maybe put him in if you were looking to maybe hurt the opponent early on in a game. The fact we've got so many different ingredients in the squad allows us to have so much more or so many more ways of, of approaching games. Whereas Bielsa, which Andy touched on with the players he had fit and with the way that he wanted his team to continue playing. So he didn't maybe damage the way they played. And this will obviously link to something I want to ask Andy as a manager later on is, um, is why he maybe set up the same way that he normally would and maybe tried to overthink playing against us and got caught out. If uh, this is a question I'll put to Andy, if City had beaten Leeds 2 0, 1 0 at Newcastle, there'd be people still screaming, saying, City need to find a striker in January. Why have they not made a move for this, that, and the other? And yet they've just scored, you know, seven against Leeds, four against Newcastle. There's no problem with strikers. And, and I can't deny, I've said this before on the podcast. I absolutely love the way this team plays. If I'm if I'm a, a defender, and who better to answer than Andy on this one, or a manager, you know, how do you stop them? Because there's no point of attack. There's no there's no Haaland, there's no Aguero, there's there's nothing that focuses City's attack. You don't know where the threat's gonna come from. It can come from anywhere. The first two goals yesterday at Newcastle were scored by two defenders. I mean, if Edison was allowed to go across the halfway line, I'm sure he'd weigh in with some goals as well. I mean, surely City don't need a striker. And the best thing they could do is actually just continue to play that they the way they are doing and hone it because they seem unstoppable at the moment, Andy, don't they? Yeah, I think the, the, the counter-attack, a really quick counter-attack comes from a number nine who is on the halfway line. And, you know, when, when we got the goal um, against Aston Villa, the Bernardo Silva goal, the game materialised somehow how Bernardo Silva and Jesus were high up the pitch. So within, I think, Ferrandino played a fabulous ball down the side. Uh, Jesus' timing was right, and then he puts it in. So a counter-attack is normally, it's two or three passes, and then you get your shot on goal. And that rarely happens with City, because we don't have that nine. And it's normally the nine on the halfway line, it goes into him, he drops it off and then the counter-attack comes. He's normally the highest up the pitch. He'll be the one who'll get the shot off. But we don't counter-attack like we did used to attack with a nine. So it's always a second phase or a third phase of going up, working our way down the left-hand side, getting players up 
then coming back out, working through the midfield. Now you go back out to Mares. Now when Mares comes inside, he's got Gundogan arriving. He's got the wide man on the opposite side who had the ball the first phase. He's arriving in the box. You've got the edge of the box rigged off for the header that comes out. So we 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 don't really score a lot of counter-attack um, goals like we used to on that first phase because we've got to get players up the pitch um, and get them into the box. But once we move the ball, um, the, the qualities of the ball for Mares, I mean, if you look at the Jack Grealish goal, there was three players in there. Jack got there first across, I think it was the second goal, the header. Um, but that can only happen by us keeping the ball and coming back out. But I think we come back out because we don't initially have that nine. We fire a ball across the um, into that corridor early on, on that first attack. There's no nine. There's nobody in there. The, the, the wide man on the opposite side, Maris doesn't really get across. Uh, Sterling gets between the, the, the post better than Maris. Maris tends to hang out a little bit. But those are the things that you miss out with having when you've got no nine, is that them balls into them areas uh, very early. And, uh, and it's not there at the minute. But on the second and third phase, when we load the box, you know, we're very, very effective and, and very strong. And also, you know, I think we, when we played United and they had a back three, we had no striker. So how, how, are, we, how are we not going to dominate the midfield and dominate possession? If, if we've got no front nine and they're playing three centre-halves. So it was crazy. So there's the, the, the negative side to it is you don't get that. There's a different kind of ball that needs to be played in. And, you know, the balls that we used to play in and Aguero, the goals he got where he got across the front post or in between centre-halves, that's what a nine does. And that's the only thing. You don't see them go so much now. You see it second phase and... And players arriving. I think Gundogan, I think he's one of the best that I've seen arriving in the box. Timings of his runs in between centre and from deeper areas. He's the best at the club at doing it. Um, I think that was really interesting what you said about the number nine and the counter attack. I never, I've never thought about it that way. I'm always thinking about you know a number nine being in the box and pulling it into him. And I always feel like we've not got someone for that header or whatever, but mm -hmm. it's really interesting that you mentioned about the, the counter-attacking option. And I was thinking that a lot of people would say, oh, well, we don't need the counter-attack because we can score goals by doing it in the third or fourth phase of play. Then my view is that we need a striker because we actually need to change the way we play. Every now and again, you need to change the way you play. I remember... Guardiola saying at the, the end of last season that you know inevitably things players will change will change the way we play because you need to you either refresh your squad or you refresh the manager and eventually a, a system can sort of go stale um, and I think if we continue to play a certain way for too long then there'll be the, the, the standards will drop the players will be less motivated um, I, I feel like if we bring a number nine it will provide a, a new way of playing I think we were ready for that in the summer. You know, we saw that Bernardo wanted to go, Laporte wanted to go, does everyone was Jesus wanted to go. Those players were, were sort of ready to move on. We were looking for we're in sort of a transitional phase. But that sort of passed because we couldn't get out the, the couldn't get those players out. We couldn't get a striker in. So we're sort of still lingering on last season's uh, system. And I feel like by bringing a number nine, you refresh the way you play. So you'd 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 earn more goals on the counter-attack, as you were saying, rather than it being more on the third and fourth phase. And although it's still still only one goal, um, it's a goal scored in a different way. You're changing the way you play. And I think we are due one of those changes, whether it be in January or the summer. 
I think we do need to have that change. So although it might not bring us any more goals or make us any more likely to win the Champions League, we're still going to be up there. It's just a different way of playing. And I think we need that at the minute. I can see that myself. Um, it, makes, it, it gives you a lot of food for thought, all the things that Andy and, and Adam are saying. Um, uh, one general question that I want to ask all three of you, after the Watford game, I think it was for me, and this is at the risk of, of people accusing me of being an arrogant City fan, which I'm certainly not, but as soon as I saw that, that performance and subsequently Chelsea have started dropping points and, and Liverpool dropped points, um, I cannot thinking that City are going to run away with this league. I mean, I, you know, am I getting carried away? But the, the way they're playing at the moment and the opposition are, are showing that they're not sustainable. We'll get on in a second or two to, to the way that COVID seems to be impacting things. But in, in general senses, when City are playing the way they are at the moment, they're not going to drop many points between now and the end of the season. I mean, the, the only games I'm looking at now where there's any challenge in the in the Premier League are home games and they are home games against Liverpool, Chelsea and maybe United but everywhere else I mean they should they should walk this league now shouldn't they Andy? Oh if it's only as simple as that eh? <laughs> um, it, it, it never is listen the 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 thing that's the thing that's so positive is the performances um, you know, we're not dropping off in the sense that we know we're going to a home game. I, I know how the pattern's going to go. We're going to dominate possession. You know, in that first half, we're going to have 70% possession. We're going to create six to eight chances and we're going to get five shots on goal. If we take two of them, it's an easy afternoon. And that pattern has been the same now for a, a few seasons. It's all about our finishing and how clinical we are and the importance of taking that chance when it does come. And then we will run over teams. You know, once you get past 55, 60 and, you know, teams then, there's a little bit of anxiety and you're trying to force play. I think um, it becomes more difficult, but we're always, the, 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 the scores and the, they always reflect our finishing and the quality of our finishing. And, and I think, again, that's the manager. You take that, the way he plays, he takes you to the final moment. Then it's down to the your Messi's, your Lewandowski's, you know, your Suarez. Your, it's down to that unique talent at that final moment. And that's where the success comes from. Um, and, you know, when we're right, Raheem Sterling seems to go through patches where, you know, he hits form and he gets goals and he goes on these runs of, you know, four, five, six goals in seven, eight games and then kind of drifts off a little bit but doesn't, you know, doesn't, doesn't score as many. And, and Jack Grealish still needs to find that that area. Mares chips in with a few, but that out-and-out out Aguero, that moment, that's the most, you know, those things are key for us. And I think in big games, the Champions League semi-finals and finals and your Liverpool games, you know, you we only have to go back to the, you, you'll know better than me, the 1-0 against Liverpool, the Aguero. I don't there's any other player on the planet that would have been able to move that ball with his right foot and get his left foot shot off. You know, that special moment, that special talent is what is the difference is in them huge games. And, um, you know, going back to, to the point, yes, we're playing really well. You wouldn't want it any other way. We look the form team. Teams are drunk. There's something not right at Chelsea. I, I don't know, but there's something just there. I, I just think the characteristics and I think the way the manager is, I think... 
it's only got a bench life so long before you'll start falling out with people. And it's okay when you're winning, but there's just something there. And I'm not too sure. I don't, you don't know what's going on behind the scene, but it's not like it, it doesn't seem all, you know, cozy there, but Liverpool, you know, they should have won yesterday. I think it's a penalty and I think they were unfortunate, you know, so they're right on our tails. But again, the depth of the squad, um, I was reading something today about all teams having 25 players. And um, so it's not the depth, but the quality, you know, whatever, whether it's 18, 19, 20, 21, whatever player that is in that numbers, he comes in, he, he's as good as the player he's replacing. And I don't think Liverpool have that. And I think that will find them out over the season because you're going to pick up COVID. There's going to be injuries. They're going to weigh on the the, the, the internationals. And um, so it's looking really good to answer it. Yeah, it's looking really positive. But football never never seems to work like that. One thing I'm, I want to ask Carlin about is the comment that Adam made a little earlier on, because it's interesting. On the way, on the way back from Newcastle, I had a debate with my mate and um, and I was saying, well, even on the way up to Newcastle, I'm saying they'll win comfortably today. I'm not worried. It'll be three or four nil. Uh, I was completely relaxed. And I said the only problem with this, and this, I don't want to make this sound negative, because I stood there in the in the uh, in the standing area. That's what you want to call it, the away end at Newcastle. Absolutely loving every minute, every kick of the game. Just you know transfixed and enjoying every single moment of it. But I didn't feel any excitement which is sort of what Adam was alluding to, that when we were in that title race with Liverpool, you know, when it was won right at the death and it was game after game, uh, and sometimes when you're playing other teams as well, it's really exciting. The excitement has gone for me a little bit at the moment, ironically, because City are so good. Is that a problem, Arlen? I mean, you're a very excitable young man. Uh, I don't mean that in a patronising way, but I can well, see ne- it from ne- where, ne- ne- Nearly from where 30 I now, Ian. I don't, I don't know how long the young man thing is going to stick now. I'm 30 <laughs> in two years. I don't know how long well, Adam's gonna... the young man on this podcast. Well, <laughs> um, you know, you're ex- do you get as excited? Do you go to, ever go to games now thinking, just just dead relaxed and chill? There's a lot next to me at Newcastle. And he said, oh, at half-time, 2 nil. he's going, oh, you know, I'm still a bit worried. You know, we could concede. I said, what are you worried about? Just chill out. Relax, just watch it, enjoy it. You're never going to see football like this. They're going to win, come to the end of the couple of goals. I can't understand why everybody doesn't feel that way, but it has took a little of the excitement away for me. Yeah, I think, yeah, I think there's, there's an air of, of, of extreme confidence. Uh, you said before arrogance, I don't think it's arrogance, I just think it's confidence. I said about a year and a half ago on the podcast, Ian, there's got to come a time where, where City fans start to become excitedly confident and can go in a pub and say, we are brilliant and it isn't like we're becoming our rivals it's not like you know United fans will walk around and they still believe they're the best team in England now do you know what I mean they'll, they'll tell you that they are champions level right now you know we we are league champion level but yet we've not won the league for this many years that's not what we're saying there's got to come a time where City fans can walk in a pub and say are you watching what we are doing to you and every everybody else in this division are you actually witnessing what I'm witnessing and can you just do me a favour and shake my hand and tell me that you admit that we are the best team in this division now? And if they choose not to, that's their choice and everything else. But we can't always go, oh, we're a little city and we, we you know, we, we, we're doing unthinkable things. It's not unthinkable anymore. It's thinkable. We, 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 we believe we can achieve and we're achieving what we believe. It's as simple as that. Um, 
so yeah, I mean, there's that, and then there's the excitable thing, and there's the excitement thing, which I do agree with Adam to an extent. I agree with you um, as well. Where you know, yeah, you miss the games where where it's end to end. You defend a corner, you score on the counter attack. It's uh, you know the 89th minute, you won all. You know, you, you win. Some of the most exciting games I've seen in the last four seasons at the Etihad were Liverpool 2-1. Sane scored the winner in that one. Obviously, John Stones, Claiborne off the line. There was lots of variables in that game that could have swung it either way. Uh, another game, Sterling won it 2-1 against Southampton. Another cracking win. I think we beat Southampton um, again, actually, the following season, if I believe. I think it was 2-1 again, if I'm right. Um and, you know, the odd 1-0 win now and again when you've grafted it 0-0 and you've ground out a result and you you come away and I'm not going to lie, I mean, I don't know if you agree, Ian, but you come away sometimes after a 1-0 win where you, you've not scraped the win, you've battered the opponent, they've been really, really good, like Wolves, for example. You've got the win, but say the goal doesn't come when it did against Wolves, say it comes in the 89th minute from a corner and you win it and it's, it's going mad. Um, company against Leicester, for example. You come home in your car, on the train, and, and it almost feels like a bigger win than if you beat Leeds 7-0. I don't know. It just feels like a, a much more satisfying result than beating Leeds 7-0. But then the Leeds 7-0 feels absolutely extraordinarily good because the football was quality. There were seven goals. It was exciting because you got to celebrate seven times. So there's a balance there, and it's about, it's about accepting that sometimes you enjoy the old-school wins, and how you used to have to do it. And you also enjoy being dominant as well. And I don't want to find a balance because if we continue doing what we're doing now, I'm happy with that. But yeah, I do sometimes pine for the 1-0, 2-1 last minute winners. Yeah, I mean, who doesn't? Because that they're good moments. They're exciting at any level of football. I don't pine for the 1-0 victories. They're grinding out the victories. So I'm, like, I, I, I'm not... In terms of excitement, I was just saying I'd rather us win... By by playing swashbuckling football in terms of fast attacking, you know, being quicker scoring mm. goals. Um, I don't, I don't wish we, I don't wish we'd win four three. Um, I'd rather win four nil. But the oh, yeah. goals that we score, just you know, just vary, vary the way we score a bit. Um, I just find that we're a bit slower uh, going forward sometimes. But that doesn't hinder my excitement, even when we score. You know, having tapped it around the back for ten minutes, I'm still buzzing about it. So uh, my excitement doesn't really depend on the way that we play. I think it's more the team itself and, and Guardiola, um, their excitement. I think they just need a refresh. Um, maybe some fans need it too. I don't personally, um, as long as we keep winning um, and scoring goals, I'll still celebrate as much as I do anytime. But um, yeah, I just, I think it's the, the team uh, that need that a bit of added edge from a number nine. I think. No, I, I, I do, I do, I do agree with that, Adam. And I, I, obviously I, I was just talking on a results based uh, perspective then, but looking at, looking at the performance based perspective, yeah, like, there is times during a game, I personally don't get bored, but I know that there's a lot of fans in the ground. You see them pulling the phones out. You know, we're absolutely dominating possession. We've had the ball for three or four minutes and there's someone updating their Twitter and then there's someone on Facebook, there's someone taking a picture. This isn't, these aren't tourists either. These are fans I see that have been going for 10 years and even they get a bit bored with what they're seeing sometimes. You never come and said it to me, but you can just tell that, you know, uh, they're not really concentrating on what's happening. They're not really interested about Diaz to Stones to Rodri to, you know, uh, Mares. They, they, they just want to see that ball get to the final third, come flying in the box, hit the back of the net so they can celebrate and maybe smash the phone because it's in their hand. Um, 
it isn't quick enough sometimes. But when you study the game like us, you enjoy the different variables of the attack. Whereas if you're just interested in seeing the goal, that's different. But then I agree with you in terms of it can be a bit passive sometimes. Even when we beat Leeds 7-0, there were times where we could ping a ball in between the lines and we'd work three or four more passes and maybe it wasn't as direct as it could have been. And I think that's Guardiola sometimes wanting the perfect, ultimately perfect game of football. When sometimes, and I said this on the on the vlog, Ian, that sometimes he doesn't allow players like Mares, Grealish, Bernardo and the like, the freedom to show that street football mentality that they had from being eight years old in an academy to what they've got now. Can you relate to this conversation, Andy, as a player and manager? It's, it's really interesting because I'm listening to it and I get and understand what's been said. But the, thought, the only thing we're missing on this is the importance of the game and the expectations. So when you rattle up to, to a game and it's say, say it's a Wolves game and you've got 20 games left and you're within a point of the top or whatever, it's not the be all and end all if you draw or lose the game. And that filters into the fans in their expectations when they come. When you turn up at a United Derby game, when it's Liverpool, like they were in them big games we spoke about, the company goal against Leicester, the, everybody is turning up knowing that this game has to be won. So everyone's on edge. Everybody's watching every moment. They're living every moment. Now, only the game and the importance of the game can generate that when you've had such success as we've had and the expectations are there. We, we expect to beat West Ham. We expect to beat Leeds. We expect to beat Wolves when they turn up. Brighton come, we expect to win them. Mm -hmm. Big games against Liverpool or United in that. There's a different animal as a fan turning up at that game. There's a little bit of nerves in the stomach. They're a little bit on edge because of the importance of it. And that creates the atmosphere. So the games are huge. They're the, the games are what do it for me. Uh, when when I, I, like I say, I've got to so many games and I remember the lesson when we beat Leicester and company scored and everyone was, everyone, it was so much anxiety in, the, in there that that moment created. And that's something that we've lost a little bit because we win games reasonably easy and our expectations are. It's hard to get excited when you're turning up and you know you're going to dominate, completely batter Burnley, and you're going to... So th there's just that expectancy to go and do it. But in them big games, and they're the ones that we live for now, are these big games. And that's when the players have got to turn up and the fans have got to turn up because that's the difference in them big games, creating that atmosphere that we don't forget. We never forget them games. Uh, it's ingrained in our memory, the, the importance of them and how we felt in that game. You don't get that when in in a modern sorry like any game that comes along now there's it's hard to generate that it, it that sort of like expectancy that anxiety that nervousness that stomach that only comes from the huge games and you know i get what the lads were saying but the, the game will will take care of that itself when it comes down if it comes towards the end of the season and there's four games left then we're on level points with liverpool then four games will be incredible it will be electric in there because we know what's coming. But when we, um, at this point, it doesn't really matter because we know we can go and win. We've won eight games on the spin. We know we can go and win 10 games back to back. 
So dropping a point here or there is not that important. When you get to that end time, if we had dropped, a, if we had, if Vinny doesn't score and we draw nil nil, we don't win the league. So the importance of it again generates the excitement. If that makes sense. Just let me ask you. We've got to talk a little minute about COVID and the impact of it. But just before we get on to that, since I mentioned before, twenty three years ago, York City, um, and we're enjoying the the most unbelievable time at the moment. Just for those people who might be listening to this podcast who didn't live through those times, uh, and this might seem like a strange question to ask, but I think it's relevant in the, the City fan base in the history to put these things into perspective. Just just tell us something, Andy. What, what was your... When you were at City, what was the lowest moment? How, you know, how bad did it really get? Can you can you give us an insight into to what it was like at the, in the worst times this club has ever had at the time when you were coming in and starting to turn it around? What was the worst thing about it? I can't listen. There's no there's no points there where I actually felt that way. You know, we came in, we beat Colchester, we beat Oldham. We're dropping names in there now, which are a million miles away. To you know, when them stadiums were full, and but you know we. Because of the time of the season, you know, when you talk about York and, you know, them them games, those moments where it seemed it couldn't get any worse. But there was plenty of time to make it up. And like I say, from Christmas on, I never once felt because I knew that even back then at, at that level, we, we dominated most games. You know, I, as a centre half, I was still on the halfway line for most of the game. And, um, you know, we were always we were always bossing games. So I never, I never went away from a game thinking, you know, that's a disaster um, because I knew the strength of the squad. I knew the strength of the, 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 the management. I knew we'd come through eventually and whether we'd go up automatic or we'd be in the playoffs, we knew we'd be playoffs um, and the season ran out for us really. So I never had that. I think there were times before that, the season before when they were relegated, I think there were some really dark moments early on you know, after maybe eight to ten games when they were, I think City were mid-table and then dropped just below mid-table. Those were tough times. But for me, from the moment I came in, I never felt that. And, you know, promotion and then promotion the following season. So it was an incredible period of time. Um, and, you know, it, it was just a fabulous period of 18 months to two years, you know, where it was just win after win, you know, promotion, promotion. And it was just a really good time around the club for me. I never felt that. Perhaps that says a lot about you as a as a leader and as a man, Andy, of the fact that you were so positive in the those what I'd consider to be quite dark times and never lost any belief. So thank you again for, for, for when you came in and what you did. And I'm sure I speak for every City fan always when I say that. Um, let, let's move on then to, to where we are right now. I mean, obviously, this is a part of the podcast that could date very, very quickly because things change all the time. But as we're recording this on, on Monday evening, the 20th of December, uh, the Premier League had a meeting today and decided that they would continue on uh, during the festive period, uh, despite the fact that there have been some Premier League games called off because of COVID ravaging clubs. So at the moment, City's game against Leicester on Boxing Day, the trip to Brentford uh, the following midweek, um, in theory, will continue on. Now, the government could inter intervene and, you know, there's talk of more clamp downs and restriction of people moving and crowds getting together and this, that and the other. I, I just wonder how the three of you, let's start with Adam, as uh, you know, feel about football at the moment continuing on. I mean, 
Um, you know, obviously there's a bit of a patchwork of some games go ahead. There's this great uncertainty. I'm driving up to Newcastle all the way up. I'm thinking, I still don't even know if this game's going to be on. Uh, now looking at the Leicester game, I'm thinking it's all very well the Premier League, saying that the game uh, game's going to be played, not just this one, but, you know, the, the Boxing Day fixtures. But can I really be certain until I wake up on Boxing Day that the game is going to go on? I mean, how do you feel about the how it's compromising the competition even, you know, the number of players that are dropping out of squads. Is it, is it really a, a proper sport when, when all this is happening? Well, just give us your general thoughts on it. Yeah, I'm, I'm really tired because I can see the argument for stopping it uh, for a few weeks because clearly players are missing. You know, if Van Dijk's in that Liverpool defence yesterday, the result's probably completely different. Um, and, and that's an issue there. That, that brings it, the competition into play. If... For example, Newcastle were to get the next three games suspended and they, they were to play them in February when they had better centre-halves and maybe they'll stay up. All that sort of thing gets in the way. But then if you were to stop it and start it again in, say, mid-January, is there any guarantee that as soon as the players come back together, they're not just going to get it again and then we're delaying until February? So for me, I think it's a matter of continuing for as long as we can Um and it's just, we've just got to accept that, you know, this is far from ideal situation, clearly. And we've just got to take it game by game. And there will be times where people are let down. Fans, you know, will be stuck halfway down a country when games are called off. But that's the time that we're in at the moment. And sometimes it's not a matter of, oh, we've got to call it off. We can call it off the night before. There might be an issue in the morning. You know, sometimes there will be an opportunity where you can call it off early. And you've got to look after the fans maybe in that situation. But there'll be times where it's a really late decision. There'll be cases popping up in the morning of a game and it has to be a late decision. So it's a matter of us, I think, we've just got to plough on and, and play as much as as much football as we can while we can. And if in the next two weeks it gets really bad in a way that no games can be played, then that's when you look at it. But at the moment, you know, we're getting, what was it, half the match days in at the moment and we're just battling through. Um, I noticed that the FA Cup, have just dropped the replays out from the third and fourth round. I think that's a good move. Um, the League Cup, we should just make that a one-legged semi-final. Um, there's ways to work around it. And we've just got to thin out our, our schedule a little bit. And like I say, if it does mean cancelling out replays, that sort of thing. And even finishing the, the, the season a little bit later would be OK. We've got no major tournament in the summer. So um, although it might cut the summer holidays short on the players, then it would only be you know a couple of weeks when we're in summer and it'll be a better COVID situation. So I think we've just got to play it by ear at the moment and just try and plough through as much as we can and be assessing, say, two weeks' time. Your thoughts, Alan? Yeah, we've got to keep going here. Um, we've got to keep going, otherwise we, we, we it's just going to be the same thing over and over again. Um, you know, we, we, we've run it once, um, you know, and, and it's going to be circles and circles and circles. Otherwise, this is something now that, that especially in football, in football, we have to let run its course. And, and over time, yeah, it probably will even itself out. Adam was touching on something there about, for example, team will strengthen in January and then they'll have a, an advantage, so to speak, in February or whatever. Um, you know, how do we know that, you know, we might not lose three players on Boxing Day um, and it will almost be like, you know, we lose two key players and maybe, you know, a squad player. Um, and then somebody that we're playing or somebody that's playing in January loses three players to it, um, that have tested positive, saying, you don't, you don't, you know, it's not going to be like Van Dijk and Diaz. It's not going to be an equal, but 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 you're going to have lost three. We might have lost two or something like that. It'll even itself out. Um, 
I think to to stop it again um, is going to confuse things. It's going to cause more of a a backup, and it had caused more annoyance and confusion to fans, clubs, managers, players alike than the inconsistencies that Adam was talking about, maybe coming to the fore in in February or something. So I think no matter what, regardless of what decision is made, and I go back to what I said in the summer of 2020, you're going to upset people and you're going to please people. You're going to please people and you're going to upset people. There's no way of splitting this 75-25 or whatever. You're just not going to do it. It will always be, for me, 50-50, maybe 60-40. And and whoever, whatever decision is made, it is, it's quite frankly out of any of our hands. Andy, you've been a manager in, a, you know, obviously a team that's been even bad, more badly affected than the Premier League. Um, what's your take on all this? I mean, I, I watch a lot of grass, what you call grassroots football in the Tameside area in particular. I was at Ashton United at the weekend. Um, Hyde, Glossop, you know, Curzon, Ashton, all, and they had leagues cancelled completely halfway through. Mm. Are you worried that that something like that could happen again? And at the Premier League level, is it inevitable we're going behind closed doors at some point? Uh, should there be a, a fire break? What, what would you do? I mean, without getting into the sort of politics of it all, really. I think uh, Adam and Harland, I think they covered most of it there. Um, you know, whatever decisions are made is going to upset some people. I think the Premier League will make decisions based on purely on what's right for them and what suits them with, you know, with sponsors and commitments, TV rights and everything. They've got a huge commitment there to get these games on. And then if they're not played, it's trying to fit them games in further down the line. You know, we're, we're out of the League Cup this year and it might not be a bad thing. With uh, with games, you know, when you have got the FA Cup, your Champions League as it goes on, and then the the you know we don't want major backup of fixtures, sort of January February, and trying to fit them in. And yes, the 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 FA Cup, you know, this, but if it's eighty five minutes against Swindon and we're nil nil, and when it's penalties coming, we'll be wanting a replay. We'd be much rather a replay in that situation. So it is. It'll even it'll even itself out in all ways, um, but. If I just, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to answer something that we have no knowledge or control over because it, we could wake up tomorrow morning and a decision gets made that they're shutting down whatever the grounds, we can't go into the grounds. I can't see how, with the way things are at this moment in time, and I was watching some of the German league football, um, how we can still fill the stadiums um, with the way it's going. You know, if it's half or if it was uh, 10,000 as it was in the past, I can understand that. But to turn up on Boxing Day, 53, 54,000 people there mingling in the bars and everything before, I don't see how that can work. But, you know, uh, nothing would surprise me. Nothing. If it carried on as normal, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. If it was shut down and no fans were allowed in from in, the, in three days' time, if the figures keep going up, that wouldn't surprise me. So basically, Ian, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> That's an honest answer, Andy, and I can't argue with that. And I think I'd agree with you. Um, so thanks very much for your contribution tonight, Andy. It's, it's always magnificent to have you on. And we really appreciate you giving up so much of your valuable time, especially this close to the festive season. So thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thanks, of course, to Adam as well. The same thanks to you, Adam. Um, you know, I know we're all 
of City fans, but we're all we've all got other lives and other jobs. So appreciate your time. Same to Harlan. Thanks very much, Harlan, for your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Um, obviously, we'll though we'll do another podcast. The next podcast is scheduled to be recorded on Boxing Day evening. Paul Molden, the former City striker, has promised to to join me that night with the two members of the Forever Blue team. So we'll look forward to that one. Let's hope we've got a game to talk about. Let's hope it's not sort of a you know, a, a wind down one or, a, you know, just a Christmas special looking back on the season. And we've got a game to talk about as well. In the meantime, whatever happens, I really hope that you get a chance to spend time with your family, with your friends, the people you might not have seen for a while, the people that matter to you. So thanks very much for for you, for listening, uh, for sharing everything that we do and, and you know, have a great, great festive period. Uh, and obviously, if you're religious and that means something to you as well, I wish you all the best for that. Big thanks to charleslouis.co.uk for their sponsorship, which, again, is fantastically appreciated. Uh, have a look on the website, charleslouis.co.uk, uh, and you can see the phone number on there. You can see how to contact them, buying and selling properties, trying to negotiate a mortgage, all difficult things. Ask them for some advice and they will give it to you. So um, with all that said, Thanks very much. Have a great festive season. See you on Boxing Day. And remember, it's great to be a blue.